Hello, friends. Welcome to Episode 9 of The Membership. This is a podcast about the works and life of Wendell Berry, the farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is Tim Wasson, and I'm joined by my two fellow members. This is John Pattison. This is Jason Hardy. Hey, guys. I feel like this is quickly turning into the season of poetry. Uh, by the end of the season, we will have talked about four collections of poetry, um, and I think so far this is my absolute favorite, but I'm, I'm excited to talk to you guys. And uh, how, how have you been? We haven't talked in a little while in, in real-world time. Yeah, been, been doing okay. I'm a little under the weather today, so I apologize if there's some sniffling in the background. <laughs> we can edit most of that out, but... <laughs> Just in case some of with it our, slips through, listeners, I apologize. With our expert editing skills that we've developed in the yeah, last eight no episodes. <laughs> yeah. John, yeah. how have you been? I'm I'm doing really well. I thought it was funny, Tim, that both you and I, who and both of us have young kids, that uh, it was both of us experienced the the real life that comes before a podcast recording today. <laughs> yeah. And I made a little joke on Twitter because we're going to be talking about the the poem, The Piece of Wild Things Today, that for me at least, as I listen to my four-year-old throw a temper tantrum in the background uh, in the other room, um, that uh, before The Piece of Wild Things is the actual wild things <laughs> that is real life happening in uh, in the other room. And I, on my end, have a, actually a related story about the peace side of things, is that you know, with like you have like two little kids under five, in my case, running around the house, it's just chaos, and so the house is like always in turmoil, and things are all over the place. And and tonight, uh, Henry and I cleaned his room like pretty thoroughly as far as our standards go. And when he was going to bed, he was sort of like almost falling asleep, and he looked at me and he said, "When my room is clean and the living room is clean, I feel so good." <laughs> so it's like, oh, nice! So like oh, the moment wow. of peace. And he said, Do "You know what? I think we should take the coffee table out." And I was like, "Why?" He said. So I could do somersaults. <laughs> the, the mechanisms of his brain is like, when I have a peaceful place that's wide open, I will do somersaults. So, yeah. That's the truly life-changing magic of tidying <laughs> exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. That's all she's talking about is just room to do to do somersaults. So, all right. Well, we've been talking about what to call this first segment at the beginning of our episodes and our most current idea, <laughs> the current uh, incarnation of this idea is calling, and it's kind of in honor of the, the selection we're going to be talking about tonight is calling them window moments. And what we mean by that is that Wendell Berry's writing nook, his writing room that he's worked from throughout his career is from, uh, it gives him the vantage point of a really kind of iconic window for those of you who are Berry fans. And if you've watched, look and see, you've seen that window, you've seen the pictures and he's written poems about them. And tonight, uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a pretty large collection of poems that are inspired by that that view and so for us window moments means things where or moments where we've seen Wendelberry adjacent things or just important things to us from our window or from our place that gives us perspective or a place that inspires us so and to start that out you know for the for the first time we've called it this I was going to ask you to uh, do you have, or you know, what is your quote window? As Barry does, it doesn't have to be a literal window, but this is a place where the view and the perspective inspire you, or help you to think clearly, or help you to be free of distractions. You know, whatever it is, where's where's your place? So, John, what about you? 
Yeah, uh, I think my answer to that question is uh, is in our dining room. We have um, one window that uh, is is up kind of higher, and then we have a large double sliding glass door. And um, inspired by a book that I'll talk about here in a moment um, by David Klein and the Amish farmer and editor, um, I recently put up a hummingbird feeder in the smaller window. Uh, I wasn't sure how many hummingbirds we'd get in winter, but we've had um, quite a few anise humming, hummingbirds coming through. They don't migrate south in the winter. Um, they've been coming through. And then uh, I also bought some binoculars so that I could do some bird watching out the big double glass door. And today it was really fun because I was in there with my four-year-old sitting. We were sitting at the table and I noticed uh, in one of, the, one of our mountain lilac trees or bushes i'm not, not sure what it technically is but this we have this old mountain lilac in our backyard and we noticed a red-breasted sapsucker uh drilling holes around uh some of the some of the large branches and um uh it drills holes into the wood and then it eats the sap and the insects that are attracted to the sap hmm. and then we noticed the anna's hummingbirds coming in after it and also drinking from um, from the same holes and uh, it was fun to stand at the big double door and to uh, look through the binoculars with my four-year-old and watch them doing that and my wife actually uh, unbeknownst to me took a picture of us at the door looking through their binoculars and she uh, put it up on Instagram maybe I'll put it in the show notes or something but it's it's I go on these little kicks and the people who know me and love me kind of give me a hard time but at the same time, it ends up there ends up being some pretty cool moments like that, uh, where we're just paying more attention to to what's happening outside our 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 house. And those two windows in the dining room offer some of the best views in the house. Well, Jason, you or John, you are in the the safest of places, and we love you, and we won't give you a hard time for that because I think <laughs> we'd both uh, identify with you very much just for that. But yeah, Jason, what about you? Well, um, you know, I, I don't think I have a wind a, a literal window um, like this, but in terms of places where um, I feel inspired or able to think more clearly, um, I mean, we're we're lucky enough. Tim and I are lucky enough to live uh, in or near the Appalachian Mountains, um, and uh, I I feel if I go a long enough time. Uh, without having gone hiking in the mountains, I start to feel a little, uh, a little antsy. And uh, it's there's nothing like going up on in, into the Rhone, Rhone Mountain Highlands here, up on the the Balds there, uh, where you just have 360 degree views of of the Blue Ridge and the Appalachian Mountains. And yeah, that's a that's a that's a great place. A to certain be. area of that where you can see multiple cities, you know, from uh, from yeah, up there. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, uh, for me, I I have a spot here in our our house where we're currently living. But to, but to, before I talk about this one, I have to talk about a previous house I lived in, which is also a previous house that Jason lived in. That's right. <laughs> when I moved out of my last house, Jason and his wife Laura uh, moved into it after we left because we were you know trying to encourage a friend to go in because we had the best landlords like on the face of the earth. They were the greatest people, and it was yes. such a good setup. But at that house, one very distinct thing about that house is that there were no trees. 
on, on your land like on, on the, the land where you live there were no trees anywhere you never had a rake you never had to do anything uh, and so I just got used to not having really a view or having like trees that were on my property or that were close as a part of my life or something besides the ones that were like hanging over from a neighbor's house and and uh, when we were living there I was also uh, working at a middle school which is uh, had these amazing windows it was the former high school of our town but these windows were you know from maybe like chest height and then seven feet up or something these huge gigantic windows in my first classroom at that time when I was living in that house where I had these you know no trees and no real view to speak of besides traffic (laughs) was uh, from my classroom I could see the mountain range from that classroom and I remember the chaos of teaching my first few years in teaching middle school and especially like yeah, as I, I moved to younger kids, and my, at the end of my day, I would just need time to decompress, and then I could turn the lights out, and that room would be lit with natural light, and I could see an entire range of mountains from my windows all the way across, and that was incredible. And then when I moved, I moved schools in the same year as I moved uh, houses, and so I moved to a school that has no windows, like literally no windows. <laughs> I, I don't. Some I, I have to leave the school during my planning period so that I can just feel the air and just see sunshine. Uh, but then the house that I moved into um, does have some pretty, you know, pretty trees around it, including some dogwoods. And so my window spot that I've got now is upstairs, and it's kind of adjacent to a window, so I'm not looking directly out a window. But I love writing there and working on things there because my my peripheral view is going out our front windows and I see dogwood trees and I remember sitting there and seeing the dogwood trees bloom for the first time when we lived here and it was just beautiful and then looking also working from that desk and looking out my peripheral and seeing the uh, you know the wind build up in the petals of the dogwood tree sort of flowing down across our yard and, and, and raining down across our yard and that was just really moving and really beautiful for me um, and then the desk I work from up there also kind of factors into it it's just special the this house was owned by my wife's grandfather and the desk is a handmade typewriter desk that we found down here it was made for typewriters it's just barely big enough for typewriters and uh, has like a little drawer on the front of it it's really sturdy really well made and that's just kind of tucked into a corner upstairs and I really love love sitting at that spot and that's a spot that makes me feel makes me feel rooted and in kind of a different way than I would have expected because I'm not separated from the craziness of life but that's a desk that's right plopped in the middle (laughs) of our daily life I mean you know, it's right in the middle of our living room, and I, I really love that spot when I can, when I can find moments to to get to sit still there. So. I love that. I love not only your description of of your of your view, but I think it's so cool that you have your wife's grandfather's old typewriter desk. Yeah, when I literally when I opened up the drawer after, I mean, he had passed away. Um, when I was bringing it upstairs and looked in the drawer, inside the drawer were his, he had kept his, all of the manuals of his IBM Selectric that he had, that mm-hmm. I still have. It's right behind me over here. Um, but that's, that's what he had used it for, for the longest time. And that's so cool. yeah, I love that. love that little thing. So, uh, any other, so we've, we've talked about our, our windows or our, you know, figurative windows. Are there any other window moments you guys have had? Any Wendellberry adjacent moments that you want to talk about, or anything that you think we should bring up before we before we dive into openings tonight? This is Wendellberry's 
third second no so this is this is where it gets confusing too is it's the third collection in the one volume new collected poems but it's actually the second collection that he published and we talked in the last episode about why they why we think at least they're positioned this way in the new collected poems because the third collection the actual third collection findings which was our last episode the poems sort of were sandwiched between the last poems of collection one and the first poems of collection three. So I'm in terms sure of when he wrote little them, sense right? without seeing them <laughs> actually laid out in front of you. What was that, Jason? Yeah. In terms of when he wrote them. Yeah. And when they were, published. when they were, and when they were published. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not just that we're recording out of order. The, he, he has positioned the collections in a different way in order in new collected poems too. It's curated yeah. in a way that's meaningful. And we're trying to figure out what that meaning is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. do you guys have any uh, any Wendelberry adjacent things that you want to talk about before we get into the collection? I do. I mentioned this, this book by the Amish farmer David Klein. Uh, he's written several books. The one that I finished most recently is called A Round of a Country Year. I think it was published in 2017. Uh, and the foreword is by Wendelberry. David Klein is the editor of Farming Magazine, of which I'm a subscriber. I believe he's also the Amish farmer that's uh, profiled in Barbara Kingsolver's book, Animal Vegetable Miracle. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm right about that. I, I'm pretty sure I am. But this book, The Round of a Country Year, is a essentially a year-long journal of life on his farm. And it is, it just brought me so much joy. I thoroughly loved reading it. It it changed actually how I journal. I typically journal in the morning as part of my morning routine. And I still do that. But more and more, I've also started journaling in the evening. So I'm recounting more of what has happened during the day, uh, more of what I've, I'm seeing on our property I mentioned that I got the hummingbird feeder, the binoculars. I also got a, a rain gauge, and I'm, I love keeping track of, of the rain, which is something that David Klein does. And just that the act of paying attention and writing about it has um, – it's, it's helped me pay more attention to, uh, to the life that's happening around me. I'm obviously not on a farm, but there is a surprising amount of life that's happening around me in my own backyard uh, so that's been really cool. He talks about how he and his he and his kids and grandkids form a kind of monarch butterfly rescue squad, mm-hmm. where they are, um, you know, they're they're saving, they're they're finding the um, the monarch butterfly larvae that are on the milkweed along the side of the road, and they know that these milkweeds are going to be uh, mowed or sprayed, and so. They're saving the monarch larva and bringing them back to a um, a plant on their property, and I think they rescued mm-hmm. like 40 over the course of a season. He talks about how they're caring for, of course, their property, their neighbors, including non-Amish neighbors, uh, caring for the animals. It I was also struck by just how there's no there's a variety of work that happens on the farm. There's nothing of what I would think of as drudgery. 
I'm sure there are things he doesn't particularly enjoy doing, but the scale of his life and of his farm is such that there is just a lot of variety to what he's doing. And if there's a task he doesn't maybe like doing, uh, it's not going to last for that long. <laughs> and usually each day includes two or three different different uh, types of work. Um, they're constantly visiting neighbors. And, man, I just... I just loved it. Um, I I'm already have plan. I already have plans to read his other three books. I have great possessions, and uh, uh, another book coming from the library. But boy, I, I sure recommend it. I'd love to actually interview him for the podcast someday. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I, I I would definitely love to read that. So that was it was like kind of giving me chills as you're as you're describing that. Just because I mean I'm at a point in my in my adult life where those are a lot of the things that I'm kind of longing for and longing to figure out how to fit into my life. So I'd, I'd love to read that. And have, have I talked, have I told you guys my butterfly story on the podcast yet? Cause this is what so. it, this, this brought up, so, which yeah. is much less uh, noble and wonderful than yours. But like, but we were, we were trying. Okay. We were trying. So like my daughter mm-hmm. loves butterflies and on her birthday this year, we're like, you know what? She loves butterflies. We found this source of where we could get like sort of a kit so we could have butterflies in the house and then set them free. You know, and so it was this big idea, and we're like, "This is gonna be great." It's not like a materialistic gift. It's not a toy. It's not some piece of plastic that's gonna be forgotten immediately. And so we ordered this thing and we got it up and we set it up, and then we realized that our birthday is at the end of October, um, <laughs> which. <laughs> <laughs> which means that not a whole lot of butterfly no, activity. Which or? means that the butterflies yeah. w- will hatch, you know, will come out of their emerge from their cocoons, and then we are ordered that we should set them free at that point because they're going to get stifled in this place in this little container that we have, and they can't just stay in there forever, uh, and we can't feed them the things they need or whatever. <laughs> and so release time lands about mid November. <laughs> So, which is not exactly ideal weather for to release butterflies uh, out of our house. And so we got to this point where the butterflies were like not doing well in this container. And we're like, well, we have to just let them loose so that the kids will stop. You know, we don't want the kids to see them die, you know, in our houses. So we had to like set them, set them loose on the back porch because we didn't really have any option. And they basically just like <laughs> flew out of the container and then fell into our yard. Oh, it was so sad. No. It was so sad, and I felt like a horrible sad. human being. I was like, was the, I felt so bad. And uh, and then like a month later, it was like right around Christmas. I opened up the door uh, to our to our porch, and and uh, the wind blew in a few uh, few butterfly wings <laughs> into our, <laughs> into wow. our kitchen. So there's the failed version of, of what that Phil is talking about right there. I just thought I would share that story because that, yeah. that is one we will tell in our you know, family for a while. I'm sure. <laughs> a couple days after finishing the round of a country year, I saw an article in the New York times that said that the California monarch butterfly population dropped 86% in one year. Whoa. Um, wow. And there are a, a variety of, of uh, possible causes that they're pointing to, but, one is the uh, is the disappearance of these milkweeds from roadsides because they're being sprayed, they're being cut, and so what they're telling folks, at least along the the west west coast, is if you want to help monarch butterflies, plant milkweed. Huh. Yeah, 
My yeah, my wife Lara has definitely planted some milkweed mm. in in our yard for that for that purpose. Cool. What about you guys? Any window moments? Our uh, my Sunday school class at at church is uh, talking about talking about food right now, which is. You know the intersection between food and faith is obviously a, a Wendellberry adjacent thing, which which has been cool. Aside from the butterfly wings flying into my 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 kitchen the other day, <laughs> uh, you know uh, most of them for me have been uh, moments of and I've been I've been this is not like a specific thing to to mention, but I have been working hard recently to figure out how to simplify our living arrangements or like our the way we run our days and the way we live and the way we engage because i mean i've I've certainly and i'm I'm very very uh guilty of this but just thinking about those moments where i walk through the house and kids are watching a show my wife and i are you know my wife's looking at her phone on something and i'm listening to a podcast in my headphones i've had a few of those moments in the last couple months where i just thought this is not (laughs) <laughs> this is not working. Uh, like what What would Wendell do kind of moment where I was like, this just doesn't seem to be sustainable for a long period of time. And so just, we, it, my wife and I have talked a lot about, about how to uh, how to remedy those things and how to just, and not in like an extreme kind of militant way, but just to take a step back and realize what we're doing with our time and like as far as like stewardship of our time on, uh, and of our place where we're like, we've been trying to spend our evenings thinking in a way that's more about how do we take care of this place and how do we take care of each other better. And that's just, that's just something that we, we just need to have been doing more often. So that's, it's not a specific thing, but that's something that's been on my mind. That's very Wendellberry inspired for, for sure. I mean, we're living in an urban setting, roughly urban setting here. So, but yeah, that's me. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. Well, let's get into the collection. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about openings. So, this collection was originally published in 1968. It is a heck of a collection. I, I am so excited to talk about this. I think you know, if you anybody listening who's read it, you already know this. But if you're if you're re- listening to this before you read the collection, thinking about 1968, this is right in the throes of Vietnam. In Vietnam, and the 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 drama that goes along with it is very present throughout this collection of poems. It's very, it's it's very present the the sort of anger and chaos that comes with Vietnam. But also, he he very sagely or expertly offsets that with poems that deal with peace uh, and deal with how we are surrounded by moments of peace or things that are peaceful no matter what humans screw up and no matter what humans mess with uh, uh, along the lines. And that was very moving for me. And I will say right off the bat that this was the, the first time I think that I had read this collection start to finish over the course of preparing for this episode. And as I, and I, I will admit that I'm not a, a huge I don't read a ton of poetry. I read probably more than the average person. But this became, over the course of preparing for this episode, my favorite standalone collection of poems that I've ever read. I think it, I think mm, it, wow. I think it is absolutely wonderful. And we've talked a lot about Sabbath poems on this poem or on this podcast, uh, as far as the importance of the Sabbath poems. Uh, and I'm looking forward to get back to the Sabbath poems. But right now, I can't imagine something really lighting me up this 
this much is this is this collection and i think we'll get into over the course of this podcast why that is which is the a, a book of poems that was written within the context of vietnam feels very 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 important right now which we are not in the midst of war. 51 years later. Well, yeah, exactly, which is not, we're not in the midst of war, but we are in the midst of a time where the sentiments that he's bringing up in these poems feels uh, very, very familiar. So yeah, uh, we, we will get into that. So I, I thought the way we would set up this episode and this conversation is to first go through some highlights. Uh, and so we can just kind of take turns. We'll, you know, we'll go through each of us, each of us bringing up a poem and we'll rotate uh, as far as we can go, you know, as far as uh, with, the, with the time that we have. But then at the end, kind of the main event of this conversation will be a discussion of a section of this collection, which is called The Window Poems, uh, which has been alluded to already. So The Window Poems uh, is a collection uh, towards the end of openings where Wendell Berry is, you know, almost going into mini memoir uh, mode as he's writing these poems about things that he's experienced from the viewpoint of his uh, of his window. So, but let's let's go over our highlights. Let's talk about some of the uh, the poems that have stuck out to each of us. We each picked a few, and we'll see how many we can get through. Uh, and Jason, would you mind starting us out by picking maybe the one that stands out to you the most? Yeah, um, I think I think the one that that stands out to me the most is the Sycamore, yeah. and uh, this is a poem where Wendell Berry is, you know, he's uh, looking out of his his window and he sees a sycamore tree that uh, it's a you get the feeling that it's an old sycamore tree that it's had fences nailed to it. He can see places where it's, you know, sort of suffered injuries over the time, but has, has healed over them. And he, uh, I'll just read the end, um, the end of the poem. It is a fact, sublime, mystical, and unassailable. In all the country, there is no other like it. I recognize in it, it being the sycamore, a principle and indwelling the same as itself and greater that I would be ruled by. I see that it stands in its place and feeds upon it and is fed upon and is native and maker. So what I see Barry doing here is sort of contemplating this tree and trying to learn from it in a time when human beings are destroying each other and the world and turning away from the doings of human beings and contemplating this tree uh, and trying to learn how human beings apparently aren't capable of living at peace with one another but this tree is capable of living at peace with its surroundings um, and and trying to learn learn from it so that was that was really moving for me. Yeah, this I feel like that that sycamore tree might be like the main character of this collection in some ways. Yeah, uh, yeah, it comes back up yeah, several times. It comes yeah. back an awful lot, and it's a pretty powerful image, and uh, it's one that I have have thought about a lot you know, as well. But uh, J- John, what were your thoughts about that the 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 presence of the sycamore imagery? I think that you're right. I hadn't thought about it as kind of the main character of the collection, but 
I think that's a good way of putting it. It does come up in several poems and uh, very prominently in the window poems that we'll take about later. It's going to be talked about later. I also thought that it, I also noted that it was dedicated to Harriet Cottle, who wrote Night Comes to the Cumberlands, which mm-hmm. Wendell Berry talks about quite a lot. The subtitle of that book was called A Biography of a Depressed Era. I'm sorry, a biography of a depressed area, and uh, it had come out like six years before this collection. Um, but it was, it is a book that Wendell Berry references again and again as as uh, uh, if not a model, as as a, a book that is uh, being written in with some of the same hopes and in the same spirit in which Wendell Berry is writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a, I have a tendency to. <laughs> To maybe get into some of the weeds uh, with these poems when they're either, you know, in, inspired by, or written to, or written in, in memoriam for someone, and I try to find the what the connections may be. Yeah, for sure. No, I understand that completely. And I, you know, the thing that stuck out to me the most with this with this poem, and I, I had, was thinking about this right around the turn of the year when we were coming into 2019. Um, I, I I tweeted a quote of this. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this quote from that poem. Where it says, uh, "Is it has gathered all accidents into its purpose? It has become the intention mm-hmm. and radiance of its dark fate. It is a fact, sublime, mystical, and unassailable." And my takeaway from that is that I, at that time I was thinking about New Year's resolutions or New Year's intentions. Like, what am I gonna do this year? And it struck me because I was preparing for this episode that this year I want to be more like that sycamore tree. (laughs) I want to be more aware of those things. I want to be more aware of the fact that my life is a gathering of the accidents that happen and they all lead to a purpose and that I I need to live my life with intention and radiance, even in spite of this sort of dark fate. Uh, And that there are just, I I live a life of of connected facts, but those connected facts, while they might seem, uh, mundane are actually sublime and mystical and unassailable and i was i was really moved by that poem as well for for, for that reason where suddenly this the sycamore tree became my hero <laughs> because of because of wendelberry's words because of the because of his uh... it's a it's an interesting and and kind of a fun way of of that uh, of looking at that familiar phrase uh, new year new you <laughs> you know instead of you know aspiring to be something shiny and new aspiring to be more like the sycamore who is described as being the wondrous healer of itself mm-hmm. yeah. Wendelberry describes in this poem some of the uh, some of the things that have been done to this tree he says fences have been tied to it nails driven into it hacks and whittles cut in it the lightning has burned it burned it and he says there is no year it has flourished in that has not harmed it there's a hollow in it that is its death yeah that's that's life right <laughs> that's that's uh, that's what i'm saying uh, that yeah i i love that i absolutely love it and that uh, it also brings to mind the and i and i have a suspicion and this is partly because of who i am and where i'm coming from and what i've read and what i've experienced but i have a feeling this is going to come up a lot but i i think of that notion from thomas merton this idea that life is a process of becoming who you are you know, and I feel like Wendell mm-hmm. Berry is very much on that same uh, on that same plane. 
And this mm-hmm. poem reminds me of that. Just that uh, life is a process not of becoming the person that you wish you were, but the life is a process of becoming who you are and who you're really called to be. And this, this notion, in, in a Christian sense, you, this makes me think of the, the notion that uh, we are all called towards sainthood, that sainthood is not something that's just uh, meant for an exclusive bunch of folks who just don't have anything getting in their way, <laughs> you know, don't have the distractions that prevent the rest of us, that that's, that's what life is supposed to look like. And I think this, is, this applies to everyone, that, that life is supposed to be an effort of moving towards a, a version of yourself that is most true and also, you know, the kindest, gentlest version that you could be. The most thoughtful, maybe, is even the best word that I could I could think of at the mm-hmm. moment. So. Well, I'll talk about one. Yeah, um, this is not my favorite poem. Well, Tim, I think you're going to talk later about my favorite poem in this particular collection. But this is this poem is one that was one of the first Wendell Berry poems that I really loved, and it's called "To a Siberian Woodsman," and then in parentheses, after looking at some pictures in a magazine, mm-hmm. and. Um, Barry describes seeing in a magazine a picture of a Siberian woodsman uh, and his family. Um, he has, uh, we know that the, the woodsman ha- at least has a daughter and uh, has a son, and the daughter is depicted as, or, you know, is described as playing the accordion. And um, the son is, um, uh, is going to be going uh, fishing with his father and is shown uh, in, these, in these pictures as tying flies uh, with his father. And what I love about it is that here are these, these here's this family halfway around the world, and somebody at the top of the U.S. government um, has decided that this family is an enemy to Wendell Berry's family because they are in the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and somebody at the top of the the Soviet leadership has decided that this family is an enemy to Wendell Berry's family because the Berries live in the United States. And yet, in the midst of that, like they have so much in common. These these two families, they even though they're halfway around the world, uh, and their places would be a mystery to each other in in a lot of ways, they still have a lot of in common. They live close to the land. They both have forests nearby and rivers and streams nearby. They both have a daughter and a son, and um, it. While our the circumstances uh, obviously are very different now. I feel like we still live in a time in which people in power try to uh, manipulate others by determining who is and who is not our uh, our enemies mm-hmm. and by provoking fear. And I think that that happens not only on an international scale, but, um, uh, but even here domestically, as I, f- I feel like we're, as a country, we're um, being pulled further and further apart. And here in this poem, again, we have uh, the sycamore. He says, Barry writes, I sit in the shade of the trees of the land I was born in. As they are native, I am native. And I hold to this place as carefully as they hold to it. I do not see the national flag flying from the staff of the sycamore. Or any decree of the government written on the leaves of the walnut. Nor has the elm bowed before the monuments or sworn the oath of allegiance. They have not declared to whom they stand in welcome. And then the poem ends with this beautiful stanza that I love so much. 
He's, he writes, There is no government so worthy as your son who fishes with you in silence beside the forest pool. Speaking there to the Siberian woodsman. There is no national glory so comely as your daughter, whose hands have learned a music and go their own way on the keys. There is no national glory so comely as my daughter, who dances and sings and is the brightness of my house. There is no government so worthy as my son who laughs as he comes up from the path from the river in the evening for joy. What did you guys think of that poem? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I'm tracking right with you as far I mean, what you've said about it, how this reflects on today, and this goes right along with the Vietnam talk later, and the one section of it that pops directly into my mind, which you've, you, you've alluded to this, but it, it immediately makes me think of how Americans, and as America as a whole, and, or whether it's media or whoever, or whatever group it is, uh, views you know, Muslim countries. Um, mm-hmm. And I think of in yes. section four, he says, who has invented yeah. our enmity? Who has prescribed us hatred of each other? Who has armed us against each other with the death of the world? Who has appointed me such anger that I should desire that I should desire the burning of your house or the destruction of your children? Who has appointed such anger to you? Who has set loose the thought uh, that we should oppose each other? So I, I <clears throat> that's immediately where my mind went as well. Just and it's probably I would assume. I don't know any other time besides the one that I'm living in, but I'm, I assume that every time in history there's always someone who would fit this bill, you know. Um, every group of mm-hmm. people will always have somebody who falls within that A and B category, you know, them being the A and B being whoever the whoever the person is that their 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 world is telling them they're supposed to despise. What about you, Jason? Yeah, no, I was I was moved definitely um, by by this poem. And I think it absolutely applies to uh, applies to our situation today. I think it's very fitting of thinking about majority Islamic countries. I, I I sort of wonder if it if it applies across our political divides, even here within the United States as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like uh, Republican or Democrat have become really key factors in a lot of people's identity of themselves and yet um you know we're all human beings (laughs) yeah i i just sort of wonder if it could could apply in that way as well gosh yeah i mean how could it not absolutely i think you're right um i'm trying to i'm i'm hunting for a quote all he has learned of it does not add up to it and jumping ahead the world is greater than its words to speak of it the mind must bend this like idea that um, in order to really see the world as it should be and to be like resistant to the things you're talking about and this, these views that we have towards whether it's muslim countries or mexico or, or any sort of immigrant po- population here in the states that uh to see things the way we should requires a bending of the mind, which is just this kind of like fascinating thing about how our brains mm. work and how we how we think that we're so swayed by the opinions of others or we're so swayed by the expectations of others that to see things correctly requires bending the mind, which just really, <laughs> really fascinates me. You know, that that's not the that, – yeah. that, that we're created in such a way or that we've, we've developed in such a way that that's not the automatic, that the automatic is not seeing people as our friends or seeing people as more similar sure. than we think but are – we require a bending of the mind in order to see those people that way. 
or, or we've been programmed in, in such a way um, yeah. by either governments or other institutions that, uh, that sort of shape the way we look at things. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, have you, have you and I talked about the, the second to last line in this poem? Is there a chance that you have it somehow like painted, like hanging somewhere in your house? Or am I just completely making up that memory? It's, Whoa. Um, there's no national glory, so comely is my daughter who dances and sings and is the brightness of my house. We have talked about this. No, I don't have this painted in my house, but I think we have talked about okay. this something. I think it was when we met at some point, or I, like when we met in person, but that definitely sounds familiar. I don't have that painted up in my house, but I, I definitely, definitely want it to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. That is a that is an absolutely beautiful line. Um, uh, that is, and I think that's that's something that has come up, and I might even can re- and refer to in a little bit with one of the poems that I've chosen to, if if, if we get to it. But just this this notion of parenting, and this notion of, or, mm-hmm. or even, and this could easily apply to friendship, or apply to sisters and mothers and grandmothers, and just like in people in your life that uh, that that fall right into this. So, um, yeah, that is an abs- uh, that is a wonderful line. Uh, but I, you know, I'll jump into my first choice, which I feel like is the. I, I take that back. I don't feel like it. I know <laughs> this is the most anthologized poem of this collection that I uh, have the fortune of talking about because I am the one who started the document and I happen to put it under my name. Uh, but <laughs> we we will all talk about it. But this is a, a poem that is so uh, ubiquitous as far as Wendell Berry's poems go that it's actually it was in my freshman textbook that i was teaching from the last two years uh which Mm. was the joy of teaching freshman year that was one of the things that i absolutely was blown away by there was a a section of the book that was the piece of wild things by wendell berry paired with a letter from uh from wallace stegner who i'm sure we'll get into discussion of uh, uh down the road as an influence and such I feel like he's a pretty big influence, and it might even be a, a good idea for us down the road to do an episode about well uh, about Wallace Stegner. I think that could be could be an interesting conversation. But yeah, I'm just going to read the whole poem. This is a poem that's available uh, online everywhere and is read by numerous people. I actually saw it was published by On Being, the podcast from NPR, that released a, a reading of it, and and it is something that meant something to them. So I'm just going to read the entire poem. This is a a poem that I've had uh, taped up in somewhere in my house for about the last uh, seven or eight years since I discovered it. We've had it on our refrigerator, on our mirror, in our bathroom. It was just a poem that's meant a lot, uh, a lot to us in our house. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. I think this is the most upbeat poem of the collection in some ways, or it's 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 the most kind of transcendent in tone 
of, of all the poems in here. Uh, it, it acknowledges that the world is not a place of peace, but immediately kind of shoots for the stars and saying, like, when I start find myself starting to notice all the crap that's going on around me that's really bringing me pain or is troubling me, here's what I do. It's, you know, it's almost like a, a tutorial or something. Uh, which which I think is not terribly uncommon in, in Wendell Berry's uh, writing, that he'll come right out and say, this is what what you do, or this is what I do, I think is the more more accurate version. Uh, but this, this, this notion that when you start, when you find the worry of the state of the world flooding over you, separate yourself from the world, you know? Separate yourself from what everybody thinks of as the world. So what, what, what would, uh, actually the first question I have for you guys about this is when's your, do you have a memory of the first time you heard this poem or came across this poem? And this could be like a rough thing. You don't have to say like, well, it was January 31st of, uh, 2001. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I came across it like in an anthology, uh, an anthology of modern poetry, like one of those Norton anthologies that I had when I was, Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in college and, I remember it from there, and I, I was certainly moved by it uh, then, but I have to say, reading it now in the context of the rest of the poems in this collection uh, makes it even more moving to me because it's it's sort of nestled in the middle of some really angsty poems mm-hmm. dealing with some really terrifying realities uh, of the time with, with the Vietnam War going on. Uh, and Wendell Berry sort of wondering what what the lives of his children's uh, of his children are, are going to be like when they grow up. Uh, is there going to be any world left for them? And right. Just um, just to interject, like you keep going in a second, but like there there are poems that we yeah. probably won't talk about in this collection because we can't get to all of them but that are literally named things like "Against the War in Vietnam" or "The Want of yeah. Peace." <laughs> there are, there are poems that are yeah. very directly named uh, as, I and mean, he's not dancing around anything. Yeah, in this in this collection. Yeah. So this and the want of peace comes the want of peace comes right before this yeah. one in the new yeah. poems yeah. at least. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think this is sort of the the rhythm of this collection, right? Uh, I mean, Barry is contemplating these very real terrors that are threats to to human life uh, and threats to the natural world as well, and um, is is clearly clearly very terrified by them and yet there's this rhythm of him sort of returning to to nature and finding some kind of peace there that he can learn from even when he knows that there are terrifying things happening in the world around him i don't remember when i read it for the first time i know that i would have come across it at the very least the first time that i read his uh selected poems uh, I do remember the first time in which it really uh, stood out to me. It was when Bill Moyers interviewed Wendell Berry, uh, and Moyers had Berry read the piece of Wild Things, and then he Moyers asked Wendell Berry to expound on the the last line, where Berry says, "For a time I rest." In the grace of the world and am free and i looked up the that interview in preparation for for this episode and if you don't mind i'd like to read what winnowberry said uh when moyers asked him to 
to take that line a little bit further. Barry says, I meant it in the religious sense. The people of religious faith know that the world is maintained every day by the same force that created it. It's an article of my faith and belief that all creatures live by breathing God's breath and participating in his spirit. And this means that the whole thing is holy, the whole shooting match. There are no sacred and unsacred places. There are only sacred and desecrated places. Of course, that's a line from another poem. So finally, he says, so finally I see those gouges in the surface of mine country as desecrations, not just as land abuse, not just as human oppression, but as desecration, as blasphemy. So very explicitly Ooh. religious. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. That's, you know, that, and that, yeah, that brings to mind a point that I, I definitely am going to bring up later when we get to window points. This is something that throughout this collection has been coming up over and over to me, which is this, you talked about the, uh, or in that quote, there's mention of the force that brought us here as the force that keeps things going, you know? And one yeah. thought that crossed my mind and that just kept crossing my mind was this idea that, uh, that I took away from this collection that I think is why it has made it so important to me already, which I alluded to at the beginning of the, or, or stated at the beginning of this recording, is just that uh, what I walked away from thinking was 90% of, or, you know, and this that's just the number that kind of popped in my head, but just like the majority of the world around us is peaceful, Right that the majority of the world around us is peaceful, whether it's the trees out in your front yard or it's the mountains nearby or it's the rivers that are flowing through and that the problem, all of the problems of the world are kind of sucked in or, or, or sucked in by maybe 10, 15% of it is what it feels like, you know, that we have just so monumentally screwed up in a lot of ways that 10 to 15% that are probably profitable for someone, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what all of our attention goes to. And so I feel like Wendell Berry is telling us and is opening our eyes with this poem to the idea that there is so much of this world that is still ready for you to just take 10 steps to the left and be at peace. Yeah. Or just put your put your phone away <laughs> or just uh, or turn the TV <laughs> off or do whatever it is that, like, we all – Every single person, and I'm speaking, you know, in America, that the, the, the angst that he's he's referring to that we're kind of feeling now, that there are days where I am feeling crazy, and that if I just stepped out in my backyard and looked up into this gigantic tree that's growing in my backyard and just stopped for a second, that I'd feel better. And so I feel great hope from this poem and great hope from this collection because it feels as though he is telling us that, like I said. 85% of this world, 90% of this world is peaceful and it is just trying to get along despite how just prodigiously humans are effing up the <laughs> the other 10 to 15%, you know. And maybe I'm maybe I'm being unreasonable with that, but that's just that's what I walked away with and it it made me feel very very hopeful. Huh. Yeah. No, I th- I think that's I think that's that's great, Tim. Um, I sort of wonder, though, I, I don't know. He doesn't seem to be, I don't think optimistic is the right word to use for him in terms of the future of humanity, at least. 
Uh, he's optimistic yes. about creation. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the trees will definitely take back over if we destroy ourselves. And that comes up somewhere within this <laughs> and, collection. And lots yeah. of these poems, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so maybe there is some like still some sort of grand cosmic hope we can take from that. I don't know. And I think the hope I was referring to is very much like a hope of the moment. You know, like I'm not. Ah, I'm thinking yeah, of like yeah, yeah, yeah. anyone who is in a tough. Like if I'm in a tough place, that the that what I can do to connect myself to the earth or to uh, clear my mind or just get myself to, to cleanse the palate, so to speak, or whatever, is not as far off as it might feel like, you know, is what I'm saying. That, like, it's almost like right. geographically 90% of the world is peaceful yeah. and 10% yeah, yeah, of yeah. it is just, like, us freaking out at each other, <laughs> you know. So, so yeah, yeah you're, I, you're absolutely right. And, I, and I, I didn't – maybe I was not explaining myself clearly, but I – I definitely felt with what I was explaining, it was like within the moment that um, uh, the hope I was feeling is just hope that I can find relief, you know, within the moment of feeling stressed or feeling overwhelmed by the things that the world is throwing at me, that relief is available nearby through create, through creation, through uh, separation. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the poem, a discipline that, that I think is the last one that we have, at least in, in the selections from this collection, uh, the last line of that is, it, it is the time's discipline to think of the death of all living and yet live. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that we're able, this may not, by the way, be the last poem, uh, I may have gotten that wrong, but but anyway, the, the way you sort of cultivate uh, cultivate that discipline at least for Barry seems to be looking out your window at the tree or the birds um, outside of your window mm-hmm. like you're saying Tim just taking a taking a step aside and experiencing that part of the world that uh, that is peaceful yeah it's almost meditative right it's like the yeah, ideas of, yeah. of, of meditation of just giving your mind space to just be still for a little while and the note I wrote on that poem uh, one of the notes I wrote it's actually funny the the two notes I wrote one is revelation <laughs> I wrote in the side the other one is to live as if your life depends on it which sounds like a platitude or, so, or, or sounds like a, a cliche but it's just like one of those obvious statements that seems to actually mean a lot more than I, th- I thought it would when I wrote it down but yeah you're absolutely right yeah you know there are a number of times throughout this collection in which Barry s- seems to juxtapose kind of the abstractions of of the you know of the powerful and or even just our own tendency to to abstract ourselves from the real world Mm -hmm. juxtaposing that with life actually lived on the ground um with real people in real places with you know surrounded by real trees and real birds and um and he you know uh, he seems to be saying that if we have any chance of salvation at all, uh, you know, as a as a race, it's going to be to unabstract ourselves and to and to mm. go outside mm-hmm. and to like we can't be we can't be fully human if we've abstracted ourselves from the rest of the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, in that poem that he quotes in that in that Bill Moyers interview when he says. Um, when he talks about how, how there are no un, uh, unsacred places, that's from his uh, poem, How to Be a Poet to Remind Myself, mm-hmm. um, 
which is my second favorite of all of his poems. In that in that same poem, he has a line where he says, "To uh, he says to go outside and and with uh, with unconditional breath, breathe the unconditioned air." Um, obviously, uh, contrasting it with with air conditioning, and something I'm sure that we'll talk about in that episode. What I love about uh, about his his approach to poetry is actually let me put it a different way that word our word poetry comes from the greek word poema the new testament in the new testament the the apostle paul says that we are god's poema we are god's poems in other words and so i like to read that particular poem how to be a poet as how to be a poem like how to be like not just a creator but a truly created being Mm -hmm. and i go through the list of what he has in that poem and i see that all of the all of the the advice that he's giving himself to be a a poet is the same advice that i need to take just to be a a better poem yeah um to be as fully human as possible a very simple mental connection to that but just that really makes me think of is that we just got my son a t-shirt and i forget the name of the company that makes this and i'll try to link it in the show notes if i can find it but there's a a company that's making all these this clothing for for kids that has uh these like really meaningful messages on the front uh but all of them are you know a little bit tongue-in-cheek but are really powerful and that reminds me of the shirt we got my son which uh it says boys will be boys uh, and then boys, the second boys is crossed out and it says good humans uh, yeah. on it. And so it says boys will be <laughs> good humans. And uh, we, Jane and I saw that and we we're like, we, we chuckled at first, but then it was like a chuckle and then, a, oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I almost wish he had a shirt that says, go, uh, you know, boys will be good poemas or whatever, you know, poema. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, just yeah. that that's, uh, uh, could there be a better message to live or a better, a better, uh, better notion to live by i guess when i was self-conscious about how you know spending a few minutes on a poem that's not even in this collection then i realized it'll be like four years until we get to that <laughs> and, other I, and yeah, i think yeah. it's come up totally. like three times already since we started recording <laughs> <Shoot>. <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think just well if you need to cut something no, this should no, be it absolutely no, Never. no i think i was i was gonna say the opposite just settle in we're gonna talk about that poem a lot because that's an important <laughs> one uh, to us and that's it's a beautiful poem so I guess I also have a poem you want to jump in with. John, do you have a you want to throw in something about another? I think I figure we can we can cover a couple more and then we should jump in and talk about window window poems. Yeah, I think one that definitely deserves mentioning is the second poem in uh in this collection and it's called My Great Grandfather's Slaves. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Barry I think Barry is sometimes critiqued in, in how he deals or, or doesn't deal with with race um i i don't probably don't know enough about that yet to to really weigh in but it's definitely a an it's a an ongoing question and conversation that's happening at least internally as we read you know across all these genres but here in this second uh poem he's he's talking about race very directly um where he is imagining um the uh, his great grandfather, uh, who was a slave owner, 
And a great-grandfather is not that far back. My kids know their great-grandfather. Um, my great, my grand, my paternal grandfather is still alive, and so it would not have been that far, far back for for Wendell Berry. And basically, he talks about how his, the fact that his family owned slaves, is is something that Barry himself is implicated in. That that doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so he says at the end. Well, at one point he says, I see them, speaking of the slaves, I see them obeying and watching the bearded tall man whose voice and blood are mine, whose countenance in stone at his grave my own resembles, whose blindness is my brand. And then toward the end of the poem, he says, I have seen that freedom cannot be taken from one man and given to another and cannot be taken and kept. I know that freedom can only be given and is the gift to the giver from the one who receives. I am owned by the blood of all of them who were ever owned by my blood. We cannot be free of each other. Remembering again that this was published in 1968. Mm -hmm. Not only, of course, is that over 50 years ago, but it's the same year in which Martin Luther King was assassinated. It's Um, only a few years after the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. Uh, that's right civil rights act but he's talking about systemic racism uh white privilege he's talking but he's talking about it at the level of the intensely personal and and intimate and um i would imagine that he's talking about race in a way that many other whites whether southerners or northerners weren't back then but yeah his his that he can't be free from that past and never can be free from that past. I was really taken by that. When you read towards the end of the poem, one of those stanzas, uh, I was taken by it because I, as a teacher of American lit, that's the 11th grade. That's what I teach. We talk a lot about like, what's the American identity? Like, what does it mean to be an American and stuff like that? And, and, you know, because of the media landscape we lived in, because of, just kind of the platitudes that surround us all the time. People will, kids will always say that America means freedom, right? Means being free. And that, and I was just, it was like running into a brick wall when I read that third to last stanza where he says, I have seen that freedom cannot be taken from one man and given to another and cannot be taken and kept. And that was a a line that I immediately thought to myself, this needs to be seen. Like, I need to tell my students Mm -hmm. about this. I need them to see this idea because that is absolutely true. Nothing is as simple as like, well, we're just free. We're here because we're free. It's like, yeah, well, why are we free? And what what went into that? And that no matter what you think and no matter what you say right now after I say this, (laughs) you are forever connected to a, a greater story than just what's happened in your Snapchat feed or whatever, or your Snapchat story or whatever, you know, like, or that, that your, your story is, uh, is infinite and you have to have to acknowledge that. And I, it, it struck me that that's something I, I felt I needed to share and, and needed to think of myself, you know, needed to, to pay attention to. Yeah. We're all implicated whether we, whether our family owns slaves mm-hmm. or not, like we're all implicated in that past. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you guys make of of that second to last stanza there? I know that freedom can only be given and is the gift to the giver from the one who receives. 
I have to be honest that that, that stanza almost meant nothing to me in some, you know, in some ways or that it kind of tripped me up in a way where I was like, I don't really know exactly what you're saying here. So that's what, I, that's right. what I'll throw in right off the bat. That I know that freedom can only be given because I'm so, I'm so absorbed in the ideas of, you know, you like the language of the declaration of independence. Um, it's that, that freedom is a truth that is self-evident in some ways that's just kind of obvious that we all kind of start with so when he says that freedom is something that can be given my my mind immediately goes to the idea that it's something that happens to be given because of how people tend to run the world but that actually it's something that we should have automatically we shouldn't have to have it given to us right yeah i mean and is the gift of uh gift to the giver from the one who receives I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's wrong to call, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation as a gift to the slaves because it wasn't. Right. It was that it was something they they already like like you're saying they they had. You're welcome, um, or right. they should yeah, have. There was a, yeah, yeah, exactly, there exactly, yeah. But but a gift to the giver from the one who receives. I don't know. I, I don't really know what to make of that. Yeah, I mean, the, my main kind of takeaway is just that uh, the freedoms that you can, f- we should all be pushing ourselves to the point where we should be allowing freedoms to other people, or we should be giving freedoms to other people. And that one point of view you can have in that sort of exchange is that it's like the the more you put in, the more you get out kind of attitude is what pops into my head. You know, that like, if you are acknowledging that others should have the freedoms that you have, then you will be rewarded by that or something, or that you will be hmm. uh, better off for have, you know, you, you will be better off for right. been granting that to, to, to others. Well, or if you are recognizing that you are deciding to give someone freedom, you, you might be recognizing that, you have withheld freedom in some way because of your your place of privilege. I don't that know. Is, I mean, that is that is one hundred percent well uh, more well put than what I just said. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know about no, that. that uh, but but I don't know. Coming to reckon with that, and hopefully someday to heal from that as well. I don't, I don't know. Mm. Maybe that's something that he's getting at. Um, or something that he's wrestling with. I don't with. get the impression that he thinks that freedom is even possible anymore. Because huh. if you go if you go earlier in there, he's saying, it's almost like he's describing a haunting. Hmm. If these, these the, the, the spirits of former slaves like haunt his land, haunt his, hmm. the house in which he was born, um, haunt his memory. And he says, I see them born shadow within shadow shroud within shroud through all nights from their lives to mine long beyond reparation or given liberty or any straightness so maybe freedom was possible at one point but it's it's not possible but we're long past that mm-hmm. and hmm. we have to live with this haunting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and then that which i think strengthens what he says at the end when he says i am owned by the blood of all of them yeah whoever were owned by my blood we cannot be free of each other yeah this is just part of the like the the inescapable brokenness of our country 
Yeah. That's very well put, John. I, I think that's yeah, absolutely. That I, I had kind of like a oh snap moment, you know, like a, <laughs> or like an aha moment. I mean, just as you're saying that, that's that's very well put. This idea that uh, that freedom is not something that we can really—that's not really a word we should be able to throw around at this point, as mm-hmm. far you know, because of how entrenched we are in the problems that we've created for ourselves, and that that uh, freedom is absolutely a gift and whether it's being given to us or given to somebody else, it's never just that simple, which is definitely, definitely the, uh, the rhetoric of our nation is that freedom is just this given that everybody has. And so it's like, everybody starts from the perspective of I have freedoms. So now I'm going to do this. Whereas it should really be some form of the reverse, right? Or, or some form mm-hmm. of like, um, so I let me recognize the ways in which my life is tied to other people's ex- lives. Um, yes, yeah, through time, yeah, through time, and the and just the circumstances that have sort of built up over time, and the the just really the random stuff that happens to have happened. You know, like the stuff that our country has gotten ourselves into and gotten ourselves out of, and and figured out that. Um, it's never as simple as just like, well, that's a freedom I have, so therefore I'm just going to interpret that carte blanche and just say I can do anything I want that is in any way related to this freedom that I'm supposed to have uh, because yeah. it's never that simple. We're, we're far too connected to one another to be that to be that simple-minded. Yeah. Well, um, hey, I'll bring up another one that's kind of that's, that's connected to that, which is a poem that really moved me. It's a simple poem. It's a short poem um, that I, I'd, I'd love to bring up before we move on to the window poems, but is the a poem called To My Children Fearing for Them. Uh, and it's a short poem, but it is uh, evergreen. You know, it's a, it's a poem that feels as true today as it probably ever will in, to infinity. You know, but just... In the poem, he says, terrors are to come. The earth is poisoned with narrow lives. And I love that, that, fra- you know, that phrase of narrow lives, lives of narrow focus. Uh, terrors are to come. The earth is poisoned with narrow lives. I think of you. What you will live through or perish by eats at my heart. What have I done? I need better answers than there are to the pain of coming to see what was done in blindness, loving what I cannot save. Nor, your eyes turning toward me, can I wish your lives unmade, though the pain of them is on me. And that just, of all the angst in this collection, that one stuck, you know, or the, the, the problems and the pain of this collection, that one stuck with me that further and further I got into the po- to this collection, that poem was like a knife that just kept on twisting in my stomach, you know, uh, as you know, as it says, it says to uh, my children, but just just two future generations, really. You know, um, this idea that there are problems. There are always problems. There are always things that are going on in this world. There are always things that are messy. There are always things that don't make sense. Right? Um, that just people should understand as just being black and white in some fashion. And I'll. I'll resist getting into Enneagram stuff right now, but like, 
<laughs> but, but just that that there are things that should be black and white, and that this 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 poem is saying that there are things that should be right or should be wrong, and I've brought you into this world, and you're going to have to deal with all this stuff, and it's going to be messy. Like I'm not going to be able to prop you up and to live this life in the perfect way that I would hope that you could live this life. But at the same time, it would be absolutely ridiculous for me to to, to wish that you weren't here or that I hadn't brought you into this world, which is, I feel like, the ultimate struggle of the race, right? And if you simplify it down, it is basically, within this world, within this world, there are always problems. And the problems that are always here are new problems. There are always new versions, they might be new versions of old problems, but there are always new problems that I have not dealt with that you as my son, my daughter, my niece, my nephew, my whatever, you will have to deal with. And I'm sorry you have to deal with those. But I'm glad you're here to deal with it. You know, and that was just such a simple notion that just it, it, it repeatedly moves me. I found myself asking questions that Mary probably didn't intend the reader to ask. Like, why do we bring children into the world hmm. is it for their sake or for our own yeah. hmm. is it so that they can live fulfilled lives or is it so that we can live a more fulfilled life because or live up to an expectation yeah yeah or living up to an expectation is it because part of for many people though not of course not all but for many people the idea of raising children is something that, yeah, that we are, we expect to be, we, that we believe is expected from us. This is very abstract. These are big questions mm-hmm. that I, like I said, I don't think we were intended to ask, but I wonder if you can, if someone can get to the point in which they love life they love this broken world so much that they want to bring children into the world both despite of and because of its brokenness yeah, like that. yeah because for all of that it has so much there's so much richness to it and i confess you know i have two daughters and man i i just love them more than anything and being the father of daughters is the best thing that i get to be but I wasn't thinking <laughs> about them <laughs> and like, and you know, and all of the stuff that they would have to, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I probably didn't think enough about, <laughs> about them when we were making decisions as kids. Out of a, a, a subconscious, uh, a subconscious need and a subconscious hope, you know, is yeah. like parenting always rises out of that. Um, <laughs> the subconscious need for someone to love you, for somebody to uh, care for, you know, somebody who, and, and a subconscious hope for somebody who might be able to, to figure things out better than we will, or, or a subconscious hope for somebody who won't be so bogged down in all the crap that we have to wade through all the time, you know. That's good poetry right there. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it matters uh, what questions uh, you're intended to ask if it if it makes you ask those kind of questions? It's a good poem. I think. Amen, brother. Yeah, yeah. good Amen. point. And it's also yeah. Gosh, then as you say that, it's just 
it's the perfect example of one of those poems that's it's like I'm gonna write a poem about the worries I have having kids and I'm gonna write the most simple like the simplest poem I could possibly write like it is just I'm not gonna hide anything and this is one of the the problems I ran into with the broken ground collection and I talked about when we were when we talked about that collection I said they were very poemy you know, where they were very like poemish that he, it seemed like things were obscured intentionally. Uh, and I, I think I had said something about them being like poems written by a grad student or something, you know, that they were, they, right, but these right, are poems right. where he's starting to click into that just clarity of, yeah. I have something to say. And I'm going to say it. And there is, and it's, it's stupid for me to put anything in between you understanding this poem and you not understanding this poem. Yeah. This is one of a yeah. perfect example of that. Yep, and I would agree with you that this is of the three collections we've read so far. This is far and away my favorite, probably yeah, for the reason too. that you just said. Well, our conversation about openings was going so well that we actually went twice as long as we expected. So we decided to split this up into two episodes. We thank you so much for listening to the first part of this conversation, and the next one will be with you very soon, probably next week. All of Wendell Berry's poems are published by Counterpoint Press, and we are a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. So please go to their website and check out some of the other great podcasts offered by Rabbit Room. Until next week, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.